It's Teacher Appreciation Week, and we have a teacher bashing story. Not really. Don't get excited. It's just a different take on teacher appreciation for this week on today's Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, Chief Influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. And along with me, back again, has been gone for a while, is my co-host, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. He's back, ladies and gentlemen, Ravi Gupta. Did I go anywhere? I just think you had a good set of interviews last <laughs> week, so we didn't need me. Uh, we always need you. Good to have you back. It's a perfect time to do it because it's Teacher Appreciation Week. We want to make sure that we appreciate teachers, you as a person who has been deep in education, actually running schools, having to work directly with educators and educate children. What say you at the beginning of Teacher Appreciation Week? I almost think of it as Student Appreciation Week because often it's like an opportunity to reconnect with your students. And there was this article in Belmont University's publication last week that just reminded me of the parts of the work that I miss. It was one of my former students, Miracle, who is graduating from Belmont University's data science program. She's the first black female graduate of the Belmont Data Science Program, and they did a whole write-up of her and how talented and amazing she is. And so it was just a reminder that, hey, like, teaching is hard, but one thing that's cool about the Teacher Appreciation Week is uh, a lot of people reach out to your former students, and so you learn about some of these things uh, at this time. And I know a lot of teachers, both current and former, look forward to it because it's an opportunity to reconnect with alumni in particular. I think that's got to be such a rewarding thing to be able to say. And to see, like, you have the benefits of doing the job, and then you leave the job or you do whatever, but still to know afterwards that there are these lives walking around out there that you somehow had some hand in, and you get to see their stories. I do have, like, a few educator friends that tell me a lot of the tragic stories, right? Like, you have a certain number of kids going through your life and through your class every year, and some of them are having some pretty dark experiences. And, you know, I hear about those, but so it's these that I really appreciate. Like, you know, I saw that when you sent it to me, I'm like, how good it would be in my own life if I felt like I had any kind of contribution to somebody becoming a success like that. Well, you're a parent, so you get it most directly. You know, I, I can only imagine how powerful that is. But I think, you know, just like with parents, like you spend probably more time worrying than you do celebrating. And that's what I do. I mean, the current students who are kind of in the balance right now, a lot of my students are the ones that I'm closest with are in college right now. And so I, or supposed to be in college. And so I spend a lot of time worrying about where they are. And you think so much about the failures more than the successes. I think that's like a character attribute of a lot of type A people is that you're just so deficit oriented sometimes. And so I think these are the kinds of weeks where you kind of forced to be more positive about it. And so in that sense, it's a good thing. Or maybe it's just being realistic too. Like I can't imagine being emotionally attached to 30 to 40 kids every year and being a thinking person, knowing that the statistics are not in your favor. I don't know how else to put it, but yeah. actually caring about a group of kids every year and looking at them and being realistic about the fact that the stats aren't with you. Yeah. And just the sheer amount of things that you can do wrong too. Like forget about just like the odds themselves, but you know, like I started my first school when I was 25 or 26 years old. Jesus. And in many ways I was like more <laughs> up for that kind of work back then. But there's not a day goes by that I don't think about something, you know, like it was just the other day I was just thinking about this 
moment where the parent came in from a student who had been with us for a long time and got in an argument with our principal of a school when I was superintendent. And the principal kind of stuck with the policy, which was on paper the right thing to do, but the parent disagreed and took the kid out and took him to a different school. It was just like one of those things that a more mature version of me could have probably figured out a way to bridge that divide. But at the time, I, I didn't have that skill set. But then on the flip side, there's like the hours that you have to put in to be a successful school leader. The older I get, the less likely I think I'd be you know, able to do that kind of stuff as well as I did back then. So it's a balance. I'm sure a lot of people in a lot of fields have this like sort of tension between the younger, hungrier version of yourself and the older, wiser version of yourself. It's certainly something I think about a lot. It's why I'm trying to reverse aging, Chris. Oh, Jesus. Is that I want to get best of both worlds. Benjamin Button. You know, toxic longevity. Is that what we want to call it? No. What I will say to you is 40 is the pinnacle. Is that right? It's the best you'll ever be. Great. Well, I'm excited about that. I feel good. Enjoy that one year because it's the demarcation, but it's the best you'll ever be. It's the smartest you'll ever be, the most youthful with expendable cash and income where you're in control of your full faculties. Like your knees, your your joints, and all that stuff. <laughs> well, what does that mean for your faculties, Chris? It means like I'm on the decline. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm on the other <laughs> side. I'm on what, what what my dad would call the back nine of life. Oh no, you know? yeah, he calls it the back nine of life. So, anyways, all this you know banter about teachers or whatnot. I mentioned at the top of the show, it wasn't clickbait to say that we have a teacher bashing story. Of course, I'm wearing you know my citizen hat today, and some days I wear my organizer hat. So I'm not going to actually do any bashing of teachers today. But we do have a story that actually, to me, is the pinnacle. It's the top of what it sounds like to have anti-union derangement syndrome. The way that some people have like Trump derangement syndrome, and people had Obama derangement syndrome. When it comes to Randy Weingarten, she actually, I think, is at the top of education world of driving people to that sort of craziness. There's a Wall Street Journal opinion piece from late April. It's called Randy Weingarten's Incredible COVID Memory Loss. And the story got a lot of attention on Twitter. It's, of course, red meat for all the usual suspects you would expect. So I put the criticism of Randy Weingarten's role in COVID school closings into a couple of different categories. Valid concerns and valid arguments about what she did. Some wildly political misleading things about what she did for political gain. And then some stuff that borders on sexist and anti-Semitic in some cases. Like those are the more extreme cases. There's some cartoons, if people wanted me to prove that part, there's some cartoons and different things that I could point you to of her that go well beyond just kind of normal debate and normal thought. And I don't think we pay enough attention to the fact that she's a woman and she's Jewish and she's a political figure and a lightning rod that lends herself to drawing a range of kind of negativity. So you know where we're going to be on this show. We're not going to go to that crazy extreme, but COVID-19 had long-term health effects. And in the opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal, it talks a lot about how she's just forgetting what her role was in keeping the schools closed for way too long and that that had a damaging impact on kids. So Randy goes to testify before Congress and she gives kind of like a line of, listen, we always wanted to reopen the schools and we knew that that was best for kids, but we really were just really concerned about the safe way to do it and to make it happen. So it wasn't a thing about close or not close or stay open or not stay open in her mind. It was mostly a thing around, yes, let's reopen and let's do it safely. So if you read through the article, you'll get the hint that this particular piece is really down on her 
like as a political actor and her affiliates. They do mention in the piece Chicago, which I think is a very specific case. That's the third largest school district in the United States that has a very kind of unique and recalcitrant union. And they did do things like keep the schools closed and say any mention of opening the schools was like patriarchy and racism or something like that. You know, white supremacy and patriarchy is the only reason you would want to open the schools. So anyways, Ravi, I want to bring you in on this. I I will just say that the Twitter, the never Randy people are having a field day with, oh my God, can you believe that she's saying all this stuff? And, you know, she's totally lying. PolitiFact actually checked her statements on this. And the short story is three points here that they make. During the early COVID-19 pandemic, American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten advocated for schools to reopen for in-person learning, provided they use safety precautions. She often referred to a reopening plan the union released in April 2020, which is right at the beginning of all the hell breaking loose on the pandemic. It prioritized maintaining physical distance between people, establishing COVID-19 testing protocols, and involving school staff and parents in decisions about reopening. This is what PolitiFact found when they looked into these claims that she was just outright lying. They're basically saying she wasn't lying. So, Ravi, where do you stand on this, man? Well, I think... I think there's like a couple of things about the Randy Weingarten debate. One is that this is a coordinated attack for sure. She was testifying to Congress where she's basically like the main witness, if not the only witness in these hearings where they're pushing her on this. While at the same time, multiple publications are publishing anti-Weingarten pieces out there. So this certainly is not accidental. The second part of this is that I have myself been critical, not of her as the person, but of the role of labor unions, as you have been over time. I know you've shifted and change your positions on some of these things, as have I, but I think I, by and large, am, I would say, more skeptical of the role of public service unions than a lot of my Democratic counterparts. I'm not like a abolish the union type of person, but I think that whenever you have a monopoly on public services, especially services that the most vulnerable depend upon, we have to be really careful about how you treat that monopoly. And so it's hard to parse through this debate because Weingarten will say certain things publicly. And I have no reason to think she wasn't genuine in those beliefs. And and PolitiFact, you're right, like has a really good write-up of this. At the same time, there are notable examples, and we could treat these differently, but like Florida, for example, in the fall of 2021, Weingarten celebrated a court order that prevented the reopening in Florida. So although she was saying certain things about wanting to reopen, she certainly didn't want those schools to reopen under that plan, which we could talk about whether that was the right plan or not. Chicago also you know, a subsidiary union, you know, I know it's complicated, like with the local leadership and the national leadership, the relationship there, but, you know, they were pretty late in the game, even into 2021, throughout all 2021 and into 2022, they were pushing back the local affiliate against reopening. As you said, there was a lot of weird stuff going on there. And what was really frustrating to watch at that time was that we prioritized the teacher's getting vaccinations first, which I supported, continue to support, but then they got the vaccinations first and said it still wasn't enough. And basically, I I think, put together a bunch of demands that they knew weren't possible. And so I think a lot of people were left wondering, well, are schools ever going to reopen because COVID is never going to go away? So I'm skeptical of the role of unions and the monopoly over public services. At the same time, I'm not that focused on Weingarten, the person the way that I think a lot of my friends on the right are, where I understand the politics of it and why it's really good to create an enemy. It's very effective. I think that the structure of unions is more interesting to me than the people who run them because the people who run them are reacting squarely to the incentives that are given to them as leaders of these unions. What about you? I don't know what people want in this situation. 
Like, do they want an apology? Do they want, like, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, what is it that they, you know, so let's relitigate this in public and let's make her the bad guy because she wanted health precautions before 3 million teachers went back to school. And let's talk honestly about the fact that this is what started to change my mind during the pandemic. I said to myself, first of all, there were a lot of parents that were hesitant about sending our kids back to school. And a lot of that was based on how much you trusted your particular district to get the safety stuff right. So depending on where you lived, I think made a difference in how much you trusted the buildings, the leadership, the mitigation efforts, all of that stuff. If you lived in one of those districts where everything felt like really kind of organized and orderly and always had been, I could see you having a higher level of confidence about wanting to go back as a teacher and as a parent, you know, as a student. But not all of us had that same level of things. So I could see how things would be a little different in Chicago than they would be in Montana right? Like I could see how there would be a big difference in, in the way that people had trust in the buildings that they were sending their kids into, in the leadership to get it right, right? There was very low trust levels in some places. And, you know, listen, this bears itself out in research. African-Americans and families of color were the most resistant about going back to school. And why do you think that is? It's because of where they were crowded and what they believed to be true about the schools that they would be going back into. Like, I keep saying this thing about the leadership. How much did you trust the leadership was getting the mitigation stuff right? That the buildings were ready for all the stuff we were being told that needed to happen, like, you know, HVAC and, you know, just all the stuff that just needed to be going right. I, I could see why there was such skepticism. And at the same time, there was lots of alarmist news, you know, about people's grandparents passing away because of outbreaks of other families who weren't taking vaccination very seriously, right? Like, you know, it just, I think it depends on where you were. And the thing that changed my mind about the teachers is this. I remember saying to myself, if I was a teacher right now and you demanded I went back to school, I would tell you go to hell. So if I felt that myself as a parent, everybody else in the world was like saddled down in their little basements and, you know, their bedrooms, you know, drinking coffee, getting caught up on all the Hulu stuff they hadn't binged on in a long time. And we're telling this one population of people, we'll get over it. You've got to go back to work. I know what I would have said as a teacher. But what about the people who do have to show up to work every day, like people working in other essential services, like, you know, my mom is a nurse, for example, for the city of New York, and she has many risk factors for COVID, and she worked throughout the entire pandemic. And the reason why she had to is because we view nursing, understandably, as an essential service. And those nurses aren't just my mom's age. There's plenty of them who are young, like my mom was when she was a nurse's aide when she first started off. She's got to send her kids somewhere when she shows up to work every day. And I think those people get frustrated. Yes, I totally agree. I read the same data. I totally agree that there were trends where many populations of color were less likely to want to send their kids back, but there were still plenty of them who wanted to. And I think they deserved a place. Like when you start getting into the fall of 2020 and the entirety of 2021, we're talking about in some of these places, you know, spring 2021, we've talked about San Francisco school board many times. The fact that you're in the spring of 2021 now and you still don't have schools reopened and you've got kids, including kids of color, showing up to the school board virtual meeting saying, hey, what's the plan here? When are we going to get back to get an in-person option? To me, that was some disgraceful behavior and feet dragging. And I think there's a difference there between like spring 2020 and even like we could argue about fall 2020. But it got so far into it that I think a lot of people looked at it and were just like, look, this is I get it. Like we could do as much as we possibly can for safety. But We've prioritized teachers for vaccinations. A lot of districts did have pretty aggressive testing at that point. And at a certain point, you got to be like, we're going to have COVID forever. So we've got to 
like offer in in person instruction again. And I think people draw the line in different places. But I think the reason why the right believes that Wine Garden is an effective enemy here is because they sense that there's a lot of parents who still are frustrated by how this was handled. And I could see that. I could see the politics of that. I, I understand why they're doing this. Well, I mean, I understand why they're doing it too. <laughs> like they're yeah. political actors and they don't have any integrity. They're not in for a fair debate or for one country having a debate about the pandemic. They're in it for what are the political gain I can make by painting this woman to be the most evil thing ever. But she's a political actor too. And she paints her enemies with you know pretty broad strokes, as we know. Like, Give me an example. I'm not saying these are right or wrong, but she went after Ron DeSantis in the middle of the reopening debate in Florida. And she fired off a tweet storm. DeSantis should be fixated on the cost of living issues in Florida. Housing's unaffordable. Home insurance even worse. But instead, he's expanding gun access, defunding public schools, et cetera, et cetera. She basically accused them have wanted to kill teachers during this time. You know, like this is the kind of rhetoric and they are political <laughs> actors. These are political actors. The AFT gave in excess of $26 million to Democratic candidates and causes in the 2022 election yeah. cycle. So to say she's like above the fray of our politics, she's been squarely in the middle of our politics. Now we could argue right or wrong, but these are political people who are very powerful. Like they're almost unimpeachable in many democratic circles. Joe Biden himself has said, quote, I sleep with an NEA member every night, which he's referring to his wife, who's a member of the NEA because she was a public community college teacher. It's a little too much information. We don't need all that information, but yeah. Yeah, but like, can you imagine if Ron DeSantis said, I sleep with an NRA member every night? Like you'd be like, whoa, that's crazy. Now the NRA, to me, I'm a Democrat. I was about to say, are those the same thing in your mind? Not the same, but like you're implying something when you say that. And here's the problem I have. It's not that unions shouldn't exist. I'm a big believer that unions should exist, right? But they need a counterparty. Now, in a red state, inherently, you're going to have that, right? Ron DeSantis and the unions are going to do battle. I could pick sides on that. Often, I have a nuanced view of who's right and wrong. And there are two political actors who, if I tried to say who's genuine or not, I'll spend the rest of my life trying to figure that out. I just try to evaluate the arguments that they're making. I think, in hindsight, DeSantis was right to open those schools in the fall. That's just my opinion. And at the time, I might not have thought that. You know, I've evolved myself on this. I think I felt very differently in the spring of 2020 and in the fall of 2020 than I did in the spring of 2021. But the problem in a lot of states, especially blue states, is you've got unions on one side, and then they're negotiating with people they've donated a ton of money to. So you have unions on both sides of the equation. And so it's not a true negotiation that represents the interests of the people writ large. It's a special interest negotiation. So that's the problem I have. And it's, it has nothing to do with Randy Weingarten, the person. It has to do with the structure of the way unions operate when they have a monopoly on public services. That's my problem. I think that right there is the key to everything. This isn't about what happened during the pandemic, how many kids fell behind, how bad it hit certain kids academically. I don't think it has anything to do with children or it has anything to do with education. I think it's a political play to say this is a good time to strike where the iron's hot. We always hated unions, and this is a good time to actually go after them because we have parents that are pissed off about something else completely different, and we can use their anger as political fuel to go after somebody that we hated all along. And we would hate her for any other reason. She could never do anything well or right. I don't think that I would equate the things that she is saying and that she's done as a both sides type of thing. This isn't a both sides thing. Florida led the nation in deaths. Florida led the nation, uh, it was like the 12th highest in COVID deaths. And at the time, 
you had a president who was talking about shooting himself up with horse paste and all kinds of weird and wacky, you know, just by spring, it'll just be gone. The whole pandemic will be over with and it'll just like magic. It'll just disappear or whatnot. We forget the wacky and weird context in which the political actors on the right were acting and the anti-science premises that they were trying to sell the public on. Now, science isn't arrogant. Science isn't about like, we just know the right answer. Science is about this is the best available answer that we have at this moment, at this time, based upon all the factors that we can look at. It's not political. It is what it is. And to say that we want schools to reopen safely and to say that we want to make sure that we're following the science and making it happen, I don't think is the same thing as DeSantis yelling at kids for wearing masks because he doesn't like the photo op of it. Or for the president of the United States to tell people that vaccines aren't everything, even as he's investing in the very vaccines that are going to save everybody. Or for an entire political side of the fence to be using their media apparatus to tell Americans that vaccinations aren't what they say they are, even as Fox News has a policy at the same time that you have to be vaccinated to come and work there, right? Even the thing you said about the workers that still had to go to work, I had different levels of trust about the hospital, for instance, getting all the protocols right than I did about schools getting it right. So I'm always going to side with, I understand the caution for reopening. I understood the science basis for being cautious about it. I understood that there was a difference between Florida and red states and blue states and my district where I lived and that it was highly localized. I also understand there are all these parents that were pissed off because they wanted their kids to get back in school right away. And I feel like we lionized them because in those same places, there were parents that were deeply suspicious of sending their kids back to school. In San Francisco, good, great case of the wealthier you were and the more protected you were, the more likely you are to be super pissed off that the schools weren't opening. And the poorer you were and in the poorer schools that you were in, the less likely you were to trust the schools reopening. And even after the schools opened, that played itself out. The wealthier and whiter families actually went back to school quickly. And there's districts now who still can't find the other kids. Well, a couple of things on this. One is I think people misrepresent the Florida data. So if you look at age-adjusted deaths, because Florida's a place that old people go to retire, of course, they're going to have more people die. If you look at age-adjusted deaths, there were 31 as of the end of 2022. So the end of sort of the main, I haven't found 2023 data, but it's almost irrelevant because everybody's back to school now. But even if you look at the non-age-adjusted deaths, for instance, Florida had fewer deaths per person than New York did. So to say that Ron DeSantis was uniquely responsible for more deaths, I think isn't played out by the data here. I don't say that he's uniquely responsible. I think we're playing with the numbers here too. It was 391 deaths per 100,000 people compared to all 50 states and Puerto Rico and Washington, according to the Miami Herald calculations for the CDC, it was among the highest of the largest states. Yes, California and Texas and you know New York and Pennsylvania, they were also in there. Florida was uniquely bad in terms of COVID deaths and needing to be worried about it. And to say that age adjusted, oh, it's just old people. You know, old people get it from young people, right? And young people are in these cesspools of like petri dishes called schools all day long. Yeah, no, but like in general, let's say you're running a school, I'm running a nursing home. And we both do everything we possibly can to protect people. More people are going to die from COVID in my nursing home than your school. So the age doesn't matter. But just to say like December 2022, this is non-age adjusted death. So let's take for a given what you're saying, not to account for age, which I do. Florida, 357 deaths per 100,000. New York, 391. New Jersey, 381. District of Columbia. So you just go down this list. There's more, right? 
Even Pennsylvania had more, Michigan. I'm not saying Florida did everything right. I'm just saying the data doesn't seem to suggest to me that there was a unique problem going on in Florida when we look back at the data. And I say this as somebody who was very critical of Ron DeSantis at the time. And so you asked, like, what do we want? I don't think there's a whole lot that can be done to undo anything other than we should all do everything possible to give kids the resources they need today. This is the most important question. I think there's a genuine response to Wine Garden, and then there's the non genuine. I think to the people who just hate Wine Garden and unions, they're just trying to paint her in the worst possible position so they can win elections. Absolutely. For those of us who do want something from her, I think it would be, and especially parents, like not me, like mostly parents, I think like the parents who are really frustrated in my senses, sometimes people just want an acknowledgement that they got something wrong, right? And I think for Wine Garden, one thing that would be helpful, and I've said my version of this before, many times on our podcasts, I've said, look, I still defend my position in the spring of 2020. Mm -hmm. Like the mm -hmm. data was just what it was. We had data about the Spanish flu and school closures, and that was the best data we had at the time. As we went longer into the pandemic on business closures and school closures, I clung to that view longer than I should have. I jettisoned it by the fall, by and large, but I went deeper into the fall than I should have. And I wasn't as sympathetic to a lot of my friends who were running businesses, for example, who were frustrated by the fact that these businesses were going under and they couldn't sustain themselves. And they were saying, just let me run my business. And I was shutting them down. And I've said multiple times on the air that that was wrong and I should have been more sympathetic. Now for her, what I would love her to say is, look, yeah, like by and large, I said a lot of things that people don't realize. I was trying to get schools reopened. That's what she was saying. But at the same time, the Chicago Union, January 2022, that was a mistake to vote against in-person learning in January 2022. Or going against DeSantis in that summer before the reopenings in the autumn of 2020. That, yeah, in hindsight, now that we have the data, we should have just let the kids go back to school. We were operating with imperfect information. And so, yeah, like I'm just trying to protect my teachers, but now let's just make sure we get kids what they need. Yeah. I think that level of candor could help. Well, that is what she said. Is it? Mm -hmm. And if I were her, this is what I would say. I represent 3 million teachers in the United States who live in wildly different geographies who do have a say in how and where they work because they're free Americans. And they were making the estimates locally based upon how much they trusted their local job situations and work situations, not just as workers, but also as parents themselves, about how to protect themselves and whether they trusted politicians or not. There were some politicians who were way less trusty when it came to safety, when it came to understanding the science and not being political. And DeSantis was amongst them. And yes, I did challenge him on the fact that he was one of the most political governors in the United States when it came to the science of the pandemic. And he did a lot of photo ops and weird things that weren't necessarily in the best interest. I stood my ground. I went on the available data from the CDC. I went on the available data from scientists. I did observe the fact that teachers did not feel safe in doing their work. And I represent teachers. That's what I do. I wouldn't be doing my job if I ignored what teachers in different parts of the country were saying about their work. We got many of the schools open and we got many of them open safely. And a lot of that was dependent on the maturity and the leadership of the local people. And in some places that was easy and some places that was hard. It is what it is. We're back in school now. That's what I would say if I was her. 
we'll do a hundred rounds on this, but uh, <laughs> I hope not. But on the COVID learning loss, so Annenberg Institute at Brown found that democratic districts with correspondingly strong teachers unions returned to in-person learning more slowly and gradually than Republican districts. The 74 conducted a study of the relative learning loss in democratic and blue states and found that red states offered almost twice as much in-person instruction as blue states during the 2020-2021 school year. And so in terms of that one critical metric, which is- mm-hmm. Were kids mm-hmm. able to access in-person learning? Mm-hmm. Look, I'm a Democrat, but red states did better at that. Did they? Did they really? Is that what that data set just told you? Is that what that 74 article just told you? Is that what really what that says? They did better on that one critical metric, yeah. Where are the biggest, most concentrated districts with the most decline facility portfolios? Are they in open rural areas or whatnot? Or are they in really concentrated cities that have had the economic bottom dropped out of them and have been on the decline for years? Where are those districts? Where are those cities? When you say democratic districts, where are they? But are schools crumbling in urban districts because of a lack of investment in education generally or because we're spending the money stupidly? I don't think that that matters to my point. My point isn't that. My point is, would I have a different level of trust about sending my kids into Philadelphia school buildings or Chicago school buildings, knowing that they're 115 years old and that they don't even have air conditioning in some of them. And we're going to be putting kids next to each other who are going to be trading life or death disease with each other. Or would I trust my rural area where I have these big open spaces and this big open schools that my kids are going to? Like, would I trust Oakland public schools? (laughs) Yeah, but they're not detached issues, right? Chicago spends over $29,000 per student. Okay. New York City spends so much per student that in a couple of years, they'll be spending more than a million dollars per classroom. More than a million dollars. Yeah, they might even be there now. And so to me, like when you're spending that kind of money and the building sucks, we need to be asking critical questions about what the hell we're doing with all this money. I think we're getting off the topic right now. But all I'm going to say is when you say things like red states or blue states or blue cities or red districts or whatnot... I don't think that that tells the full story about where those schools actually are and whether or not you would have trusted going back to school in some of those districts versus others. I can just tell you, even in the state that I live in, there's a difference between where I live in and Minneapolis. I would have been less trustworthy in Minneapolis by far to send my kids back to that school district. I also think we romanticize non-urban schools. Like if you've ever spent time in a rural Mississippi school or a rural Tennessee school, they have their own issues with dilapidated buildings, underinvestment. You know, Mississippi is like, they have such a strong teacher shortage. Like the buildings are the buildings and they have all the same issues that we have in cities. So they got their issues too. I'm not sure that, like we could disaggregate the data and bring on a, a school finance expert. But my contention continues to be that Look, I'm skeptical of the units. It doesn't mean I have to agree with everything that the opponents say, but when you represent the adults and the adult interests, and that's your incentive, we should all be very skeptical of those people at the negotiating table when kids' interests are at the table. Yeah. doesn't mean that you demonize them, but you should have a very forceful person on the other side and or entity that is independent of that group. And so if that group is also donating to that person on the other side of the table, we should be concerned about that. Because that's going to skew the incentives. I will say this. I'm more skeptical of the overblown rhetoric from the opponents who said all the wrong things during the pandemic and were the biggest purveyors of misinformation. Their victory lap that they want to take on the leader of America's teachers right now, the only way you can support it is if you've always hated the teachers and you've always hated those unions. Because then it's just red meat for you. It's the way that the Fox Newsification of these things actually works. 
They find the people that you despise the most and they know you won't give them a fair shot so they can just do what they're doing right now. I don't think they had better ideas during the pandemic. I don't think that they had more integrity. I don't think that they're the ones to do any cheerleading right now about morally who was more right or wrong because they did so many just unforgivable things to ruin the public debate and discussion about the pandemic and about what we were facing as a nation. And today they're only raising this issue not to get more kids into a situation where they're in quality schools with quality lessons, with outcomes-based thinking. It's really to say the system is so bad, we should just give everybody a coupon and send them to quality blind schools. That's really what this is about. This is about a quality blind, accountability-free school choice movement that wants to capitalize on any bit of anger right now that they can to get kids out of the one system into a system that is not any better. If they were doing it because they were leading kids to some high quality situation, now we might have a different discussion then. Because right now what I care about is I do care about accountability. I do care about quality. I do care about outcomes still. This is the thing I've cared about for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. I think you do too. And I think most people like us do. But I don't think either side is offering us that right now. But I don't think there are two sides of this debate. There are many sides to this debate. Here's the thing. The whole premise of this company is that there aren't enough of those conversations happening. And that if more Democrats and more Republicans and independents and Greens came together in good faith to talk about these issues, especially those who don't have a personal interest in it, you know, the people who aren't the political operatives or the right-wing and left-wing media figures, but just like people running a school like Stacey Shells or somebody trying to teach teachers like Doug Lamov or somebody like you who's a parent and longtime commentator, former school board member, you know, like the more you get people who come in who are genuinely trying to figure stuff out, the better. That's like a premise behind Lost Debate and now The Branch. But just so much to talk about with our friend Randy Weingarten. Randy, if you're listening, please come on the podcast. I'll reiterate what I said, which is I've got nothing against you as a person and I don't want to buy into the caricatures. So That's right. Open invitation. And I've actually literally put out an invitation to Randy to come on the show. And anyone else, listen, we have some guests lined up for this show that I think span the horizon of good faith folks. We have a very strong libertarian who is one of my favorite libertarians, actually, who most likely, and I won't announce now, but most likely will be joining us to have a conversation. And, you know, it'd be great to have Randy on, you know, from her kind of left of center point of view. It'd be also good to get like a good old fashioned conservative, as long as it's in good faith. For me, that's where this is about. And really what I care about at the end of this show, this is what I'll say. I argue a lot of things in a lot of different directions, but the bottom line for me is that we should have never taken the breaks off of education that focuses on outcomes, focuses on what happens to kids after they leave your 13 years of schooling or whatever you want to put them in. So for any education proposal that you put before me, I'm going to want to know, does it care about quality? Does it care about accountability? Does it have data behind it? And what are the outcomes? What happens to the kids when they're done with you? You can offer me any type of education proposal from left to right, and those are still going to be the things that I care about. And I think that that's what we should be preaching to everybody else to care about too. Because if the outcomes aren't there, why are you doing it? Like, I don't care who you are, what political party or what your background is. Education is about leaving kids able to succeed in the world and succeed in the country that they live in. So let's keep the focus on that and where it should be. Um, as always, we really do care about your feedback and what you have to say about the show. I'll give you two ways that you can contact us to let us know how you feel about the show. You can call us and leave us a voicemail message. The phone number is 321-213-9171. So leave us a voicemail at that number, or you can send us an email. 
And the email address is citizenstuartshow at thebranchmedia.org. As always, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening to The Citizen Stewart Show. 